doing some reviews and uh, I bagged an interview with the director of The Lobster, Yorgos Lanthimos, so we'll be showing you a bit of that, but um, how about we crack on with, uh, with movie news then? The budget happened uh, yesterday, budget. actually two days ago, and there's some slight film news on that, in that they increased the, and you know, decipher this as much as you can, I have, the I have eligible to... expenditure for productions to 70 million. No one if, knows what that means, no one knows where that money goes, but it's a thing that's happening. It's the cap on eligible expenditure to 70 million, so often the government will subsidise film productions that come and shoot here, so they've increased the amount of money you can get for doing that, basically, which, um, I don't know, it's, it seems to be a smart move that, you, you know, there are more and more foreign productions, big productions, big, big money, they they had Star Wars coming in last yeah, year. Yeah, it's all that Disney and HBO money, I'm sure they just went, well, let's have it. Let's get more, no, no more Irish accents, enough of that. No, but like, you know how um, Game of Thrones was going to film in the Republic, but they asked for a lot of money, like tens of millions mm. in subsidies, and because this was the year of the bailout, uh, the government kind of decided, um, yeah, that wouldn't look too good if we were throwing money at that, so they said no, and of course now they're kicking themselves because Northern Ireland have had a lot of success out of it. So we've got a damn Game of Thrones exhibition up there, you know. Uh, you do have to wonder if they're, they saw the Penny Dreadful thing coming along, and like, can we, can we make this into Game of Thrones? They won't, because that show just isn't on that scale, but... Of course, the, the UK introduced a similar thing where they were increasing the funding allowable for uh, productions and we were worried in, our, in the Irish film industry that, oh no, all the productions are going to go to the UK now. But what happened when the UK introduced that is they became oversubscribed, all their studios are being used, so there was spillover into Ireland, hence we have Vikings and Penny Dreadful and Ripper Street. But yeah, because what happened in England was that every major American production started filming there. Like I think most of the last few Marvel movies all shot there. The reason Penny Dreadful came to Ireland is because Age of Ultron had all the studios based in England at that point. That's the reason they came here. I mean, they can say other oh, they're, they're crap of, oh, but Ireland looks like Victoria England so much better than England does. No, they came here because Age of Ultron sold all of their studio space. But also, I mean, we have a lot to offer as a filming location, so um, anyway, the Irish Film Board budget is remaining at 11.2 million euro, that's its capsule budget, and the administration budget is 2.7 million euro, or thereabouts. So, so where does the 70 million come from? 70 million is for uh, productions coming in, and that's um, that's how much money is allowable for, uh, in terms of a subsidy going towards the film. Unless what I've explained that wrong. We aren't accountants, and we don't know what these figures mean, but they sound good, and they sound positive, so... What it is, is it's, uh, it's a sign of confidence in the Irish film industry dur during a budget when lots of other cuts and stuff are happening, because there's an election coming up, and it's been kind of... You know, it's been a big guessing game, all the different sectors of society wondering how this budget's going to go. As far as the Irish Film Board is concerned, the response has been positive. This seems to be a show of confidence in the Irish film industry, so... Uh, I mean, yeah, there's homeless people dying in the streets, there's people on the dole, but we can make... Americans come here for tax rebates to make their movie. Well, we all emigrate, and then 50 years from now, they'll make a movie about us emigrating. Like Brooklyn, that lovely film Brooklyn. But uh, what, what other news is there? Well, you had some news in, regarding a, a launch of women-related things in the country. That sounds like we're firing them into space. <laughs> the launch of women-related things. Yeah, no, um, I, I have an interest in women-related things, but um, this, this in particular is uh, women, women in Film and Television, which is an international organisation that seeks to uh, redress uh, the huge gender imbalance in the film industry. There is now an Irish chapter that launched uh, this month, and uh, just looking at their website here, they're, they're saying that they need to ensure unconscious bias is eliminated in hiring practice, there needs to be equal opportunities for women, they're going to be researching... Um, the, the sort of environment for women entering the film industry and um, 
Yeah, and just looking at some of their figures, Surely I just think you can't enforce a lack of unconscious bias in enforcing conscious bias. How do you mean? No, never mind. Keep going. My mind kind of turned around and phrased. I think if there is an unconscious bias, you kind of challenge it. It's like if women are half a society, why is all the funding for projects and all the jobs, you know, and even just all the like well-written roles for like. Often it isn't though. It's it's just like you just assume. And um, we're going to be reviewing Sicario later. <laughs> Welcome back to semantic debates on the Tomorrow podcast. We're going to be reviewing Sicario later, which is an American thriller uh, starring Emily Blunt. And allegedly, the um, uh, some financiers of the movie were offering them more money to make the movie if Emily Blunt's character was changed to a man sure. rather than a woman. There and. Um, Jennifer Lawrence actually this week uh, published an essay talking about how much less she is paid than her male counterparts in Hollywood. Um, women in film and television in Ireland in particular, they were talking about a director called Pat Murphy. She is... I've heard of her, yes. Yeah, so like, even Richard has heard of her. And yeah, she is a very talented director. She directed Nora, which was a biopic of uh, Nora Barnacle and James Joyce. Uh, she directed movies in the 80s, Maeve and Anne Devlin. And that's it. She's only directed three movies. She has a documentary out this month called Tanabana, but apparently she is the only uh, female direct Irish female director to have directed three feature films. I was surprised by that. Maybe I shouldn't have been. But it's like, I, I'm not actually no. <sighs> that that is depressing. But so I mean, it's it's kind of, it's 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 a big thing to challenge, but it's worth challenging. Uh, fair play to women in film and television Ireland. Yeah, that absolutely. chapter is now open. They're going to be. What they're basically going to be doing, what this means is they'll be hosting master classes and networking events, they'll be researching kind of gender discrepancy in the film industry and stuff, and I think it's about time we had the, something like this. They were t they, no, but they're talking about like no, I had that image of people researching gender inequality, where just kind of looking at a big spreadsheet and going, it is there, and that's it. That's like what you say, it's it's there. Some people have unconscious bias, and um, no. they were even talking about how in Sweden the, their film board has introduced quotas that a certain amount of their funding. We'll have to go to projects with female writers, directors, mm -hmm. or producers, and I'm I'm okay with that as long as the quota is fifty fifty. I think there's no reason why they couldn't make it fifty fifty, yeah. and just have it split up. And because I uh, I don't know, look at how many like male directors will make boring shit movies, but they'll still get hired to do something else. Whereas if a woman uh, makes a bad movie, they kind of like they, they they find it much harder. Yeah. Like like you just just think of a female director. And uh, Typer and IMDb, a lot of them have huge gaps in their career in terms of making movies while really bland, mediocre male directors go on. So, you know, I don't think, because, I mean, I mean, like, people would be thinking, like, say, oh, but they should get it on merit. Not, well, well, there are loads of guys who are still getting work and it's not on merit. It's because there is a bias towards uh, having more men in the film industry. And I think in Irish Unconscious cinema... Unconscious or conscious bias, would you say? Whichever, it's still it's still bad because it still hurts the quality of Irish cinema. I think a lot of the recent Irish movies, uh, a lot of recent ones, a lot of recent ones that have been better Irish movies have had uh, female directors or writers or female centric stories. So, um, perhaps fair them, I think you know. Let's uh, let's see where they go with this. Well, we might have someone on to talk about it at some point, maybe. Oh no, hopefully. In further budgetary news, the. So there was a bit of a leak during the week, and no one has fully confirmed this particular number, but allegedly uh, we now have the rough budget for Marvel's The Avengers Infinity War Parts 1 and 2. Collectively, these two films are going to cost, and you know, pause for effect, cue up the awesome power sting, and raise your pinky finger to your mouth, one billion dollars. What? Which... <laughs> no! 
It could not be that much. Uh, it, it, that sounds like a lot. I think we could, now the question is, does that include marketing budget? If that includes the marketing budget, that's not... And distribution and like everything. Well, that well, is yeah, insane. when you say marketing, you include distribution. But yeah, like that's... It's not that high if you include that. If that's simply the budget, that is insane. Because that means the usual rule is you spend as much on marketing as you do on the budget. That means it's going to cost two billion? Um, but by way of contrast, um, the three Hobbit movies collectively they cost about five hundred million. Well, the difference I'd say there is I started rates. off as one movie, then became two movies, then became three movies. So they were kind of shooting one big movie there, like kind of expanded out. So like, that's not really. This a is two big movies, though. Yeah, but they're going in knowing it's two movies. Hobbit went in as one movie, uh, or at least two, not mm. three. But uh, now, where the figures get really funny, I think, is allegedly four hundred million, which I assume is for both films goes to directors, actors, producers, etc. Which I assume means 600 million for what? Marketing and post? Or is post included in the 400? Anyway, the point is, of that 400 million, Robert Downey Jr. gets a certain amount of it. Uh, I, I heard somewhere his contract said he'd get 50 million, right? I'm pretty sure that was the first Avengers movie. I think he got 50 million either for his contract or for... because he got, I think it was 5%. When they're doing Iron Man 1, he somehow got on his contract that he gets 5% of the Avengers growth. Because at that point, no one knew what the Avengers was, no one thought it would be successful, so Marvel were kind of trying to fire him immediately once they found out how big Avengers got. So he got something in the region of 50 million for that. But no, for Infinity War Parts 1 and 2, his salary is 200 million dollars. No, no, feck off. That, that is not right. That cannot... There, there is no human who is worth... The, I wouldn't pay Nelson Mandela or, like, an idol who did wonderful things for humanity. They don't deserve $200 million of personal wealth. That is it. Oh, it's Robert Downey Jr. Like, he's... If it comes out that he, that he gives away he's... all of it immediately, I will say, fair enough. If he's just basically taking Disney's money and handing it out to other people, that's okay. He if... seems like the kind of guy who is either um, trying to build a real-life Iron Man suit, or maybe he's just buying an island somewhere so he can have his own country. He seems like the kind of eccentric who would I mean, I mean, want that much money. If he has his own country, I totally apply for reasons for that. Um, this I... hair is down a country. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that could be a whole you know premise for a movie in itself. A, a crazy actor who gets paid way, way, way too much money and sets up their own country. But I mean, actually, like, 500 million per movie doesn't seem like that much. I mean, maybe I'm just jaded because I've seen too many budgets of late, but that doesn't sound like that much. Like, for a comparison, upcoming Bond film Spectre, which I'm very excited for, allegedly costs in the region of... Now, Skyfall, I think, costs something like 100... And Commerce also is 200 million. 150 is a lot, but I, I, I can buy that, you know, for like a bond movie in that scale. 250. It's just like, again, that's kind of, you see, 250 is what I would have thought would be the uppermost scale of what a Hollywood movie what would was Avatar? cost. Avatar, good question. I think that was around 250, maybe 300. And that was almost 10 years ago at this point. That was in production for a long time. It was like six or seven years ago. Oh yeah, and that was a very long production time yeah, as well. So it was, like, it was, it was, it was like they started writing it in 2004, hence yeah. the whole Iraq war stuff. And you know, by the time it comes out, it's actually America just moved on. I suppose so, adjusting for inflation, that would be cost somewhere in the region of 300 million. But anyway, so Age of Ultron cost 250 million. Quantum of Solace cost, I think, 200. Skyfall down 180. Spectre allegedly is somewhere in the region of 300 million. And here's what is wrong with the world. That that's that's too much to be spending on a movie. That's yeah, as people pointed out, that makes it one of the most expensive films ever made. What that, that doesn't inherently bug me. Like as a massive Bond fan, I don't mind the idea of that, like a budget of a small country being spent on the movie. But what I don't understand is where did that money go? Because like I've seen the trailers, I've watched them a bazillion times at this point, 
And it looks great, like it looks like they spent a lot of money on it, definitely, but I don't understand how they spent that much money on it. Now, I can only assume their emphasis on practical over CGI effects-wise, maybe that pushed it into the, that level, because I intentionally have been, uh, been avoiding reading much about this movie, but when the Sony hacks happened, this is when all this came to light, uh, there is something about a final action scene involving a train derailment, derailment that Barbara Broccoli wanted them to use like 13 carriages and they're like, can we just use 10 and save ourselves several million? She's like, no, 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 use 13. And that's where all the, the base came from. That's how the budget got leaked and whatnot. So I can only assume all of that money went on practical effects. Like, look at the trailers. Yeah, there's some Aston Martins being crashed into and planes going through buildings and if they just didn't know what CGI was maybe it cost half, is that what, I'm, is that what they're saying? Like but does it look better with practical Oh, it actually does. Like, I want to see an IMAX Also, one, often but... it becomes much of a muchness. Like, you, you, you know, to make a sweeping statement like a CGI is more expensive or mm. CGI is cheaper, some practical effects might actually be surprisingly simple to shoot and they oh, just look better, yeah. but others would be more expensive. Like, I can only assume this is some kind of, some kind of pride thing. Post, in a post-die-in-the-day world, <laughs> I can only assume they went, look, no more CGI ever unless we have to do it. Oh. So that's why Spectre looks like it's Pierce all Brosnan in, you know, Pierce Brosnan surfing along waves in the Arctic as the giant space laser melts surfing, the ice yeah, cap. Yeah, yeah. That, oh, no, that, um, check out that movie, jeez. That, it's about, that it's like, you've seen the Spectre trailer, there's a one shot near the start which looks really CGI-y. Anyway, so, budgets, budgets, budgets. Uh, in related Spectre news, Daniel Craig, over the last two weeks during was no doubt a very punishing press junket uh, schedule. It's the equivalent of Mads Mikkelsen with a rope, you know, just whacking him uh, tied to a chair. Casino Royale reference, but uh, that's the equivalent. This just junk as he's doing for Spectre, yes. Yeah, so originally his reaction seemed to be, every time he got asked the question, oh, are you going to keep doing Bond? Who do you want to do Bond instead of you? Who's next? Blah, blah, blah. And then the reaction was somewhere along the lines of, I'll keep doing it as long as I physically can. And then within a week it was, but, if you ask me right now, I'd rather slip my own wrists and do another one. So... You know what, Daniel Craig? I like your honesty and your bipolar nature um, and your big potato head. Do, do you think it's possible he was being sarcastic? In I have to assume so, because it was one of those clickbaity headlines of Daniel Craig says he'll slit his own wrist and do another Bond film. Okay, so he's being sarcastic. Here's my next question. Given that we live in a world where like clickbait is what journalism mm -hmm. aspires to and you know just trying to get people worked up... I would say aspires to, I'd say sank into. <laughs> Sank into actually, you're right. But um, how did he? Mu he's a smart guy. He must have known like that. That would uh, create trouble. And um, yeah, no. But you have a theory being. It's not a theory. This is how press junkets work. I mean, you, you need your sound bites. You need something like that. It, that's why there's how many hundreds of hours of journalists recording interviews. These people exist. And how much do you see? Maybe twenty minutes worth. What are those twenty minutes? Those twenty minutes are people. Saying something stupid like in the Age of Ultron press junket when Chris Evans and Jeremy Hawkeye Renner. Um, <laughs> Jeremy Hawkeye Renner, he changed his name legally. Jeremy H. Renner, yes. Uh, said that thing about Scarlett Johansson. What was it? There was something. Oh, they called her a whore. Like, joke me. Remember? Cause... Oh, she's such a whore. No, that kind someone, of thing. It's like, no, someone like, like, asked him, yeah, about, uh, but she's going out with the Hulk and then she also with the Hawkeye in the comics and oh, there's jealousy. Oh, what a whore she is. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah, it was like it was meant in jest. The people all, all naturally went and take it out. So it was like I imagine with this, down. I think his choice, Daniel Craig's choice of words, slit my own wrists. If people are sensitive about suicide, did he get into any trouble over that? Or? Not that I'm aware of. But I mean, if you've seen a bit of Daniel Craig, which I have, like he seems like the kind of guy that he's a, he's a rowdy man. He seems like he'd get into a bar fight if he had to. I can imagine him saying that, and I can imagine the tone of voice he'd say it in, and it's funny and it's fine, and people are. You see, I don't so blame like, him because he has one more on his contract after Skyfall. He signed on for two more. 
I had people that are constantly asking him, who's next? When are you quitting? Are you dead yet? How old are you? Are you too old? Yeah. Like, I want to step my own. So, so, so basically at this point, because a week earlier he was quoted as saying, I'd like to keep playing Bond for as long as possible. But then a week later, you think he's just, he got worn out doing the same interview over and over again. He so he says that, but you think any publicity is good publicity. He said that knowing that... Well, the point is, we're not talking about it. The headlines are still rolling about it. Spectre is still in the public consciousness. Okay, but was that just an absent-minded joke of his? Or did he know that, look, I need some other... There needs to be some other talking point about Spectre and the studio is happy with that. And, uh, I think it was mainly absent-minded comment, but at the same time, if if the publicists didn't want to get out, they wouldn't let it get out. Like, they have control of those interviews. Like, they could easily say, don't print that or whatever, but they didn't care because it gets some more attention. Well, I, I would say this is a cynical world we were living in. If um, this, this, next, this next story didn't give me some cause for hope. Um, we had um, this year in America uh, a movie about Stonewall depicting the Stonewall riots that birthed the uh, LGBT rights movements in North America, directed by Roland Emmerich, usually known for um, acting out his childhood pathology to destroy monuments because he, he hates buildings, so he makes all the big disaster movies where um, he blows stuff up, but a pet project of his for a long time has been to make a movie about Stonewall um, as a gay man. This was a project kind of close to him for years. He wanted to do the story justice. But he ends up making a movie where um, Jeremy Irvine from Warhorse plays like a small town uh, white boy who's bullied in his school for being gay and uh, then moves to New York City. And it's a very kind of archetypal story that's like old hat and um, he's basically the one we see the Stonewall thing happen through and uh, this movie has faced a lot of criticism because um, LGBT people were uh, seeing the movie and or even just seeing trailers of it it depicts this ca composite characters throwing the first brick that incites the riot when there are reports about it being a trans woman of color or um, and and just in general that um, trans people, sex workers, people of colour, all, all these kind of people who are marginalised anyway, they were the ones who kind of started this uh, riot, which started this movement, which um, now in our modern world has become very, well, well of course, you know, like it's uh, LGBT equality is um, acceptable now, but the, the they basically, the, 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 the criticism of uh, this, the, the criticism of this movie though was that it was whitewashing history, it was Taking like a very movie ever. but taking a very boring main character at the expense of telling about the more interesting real people, like and then it ha it has the gall to end the movie by saying this movie is dedicated to the unsung heroes of Stonewall, and you're just like, <laughs> well, you could have sung about them in the movie you just made, and the screenwriter, um, it was it was also a gay man. He he, he wrote a kind of you, you know kind of apology on Facebook mm. that didn't really address the criticisms and. What ended up happening, to everyone's surprise, uh, is that the movie bombed when it opened in America. And I think people were hoping it would bomb, but they didn't expect it would bomb that much. And, and they basically, uh, there was a Venn diagram that explained this very well, that basically people who wouldn't see this movie would be people who are still outright homophobic and transphobic, people who don't like boring movies with uh, like generic characters, and people who don't like movies that skew history. And just in that middle section of this Venn diagram, that's the audience Stonewall is left with. So. Very few people went to see it, and I, you know, I, I, th I think for once, though, I think just people felt like the, the the community this movie is depicting didn't feel it represented them, and um, 
Yeah, but the studio won't do So they right. stayed away and mainstream audiences stayed away, but like... Um, the takeaway from this is going to be that, oh, you can't make a movie about gay stuff, it won't sell tickets. That's what the takeaway is going to be. Ugh, nothing it. to do with the history that we were... You see, I thought this would be a nice, uh, positive story about, like, audiences aren't tolerating, like, subpar no, no, filmmaking. It is positive, but that won't be the... the studios That's not the studios humans. They're weird robotic machines that live off money. Yeah, because, I mean, there's, there's lots of other, you know, stories about... Like uh, gay and trans history that should be told, but you're saying they maybe won't now because they saw Stonewall. I think it'll be harder. I think it'll be more challenging those movies made. Let's hope the Danish girl does well then with uh, Eddie Redmayne. That's going to be out in a few months. Well, that'll be fine because so. he's an Oscar winner now. People like him. That'll be okay. Um, even though there'll be the obvious complaints of wanting to get a trans woman to play her. Yeah. But yeah, yeah but same as Lido with the Dallas Buyers Club. But well, just maybe, to, maybe maybe there's studio there's ignorance and bring it back to Marvel for a second. There was another story I just remembered now, like last week, two weeks ago. So Age of Ultron costs whatever, 250 million to make. Mm -hmm. It's including marketing there, double the price of 500 million. The first Avengers made 1.5 billion. Age of Ultron made 1.3, 1.4, I think. And Disney announced that they're considering it a financial failure. <laughs> it made over a billion dollars on a budget of at most 500 million and it is a financial failure because they didn't manage to make all of the money again the first one did and more I'm, I'm, I'm scanning my brain now I'm thinking of all the Disney films I watched growing up was there ever like a character who was greedy and learns the error of their ways for like caring too much about money or something because no. this is just that is yeah you're not happy because it made less than the first movie even though it was like almost identity is like ninety percent or so of um don't feel like mar mar merchandising and Blu-ray and DVD sales. That was just box office. That's not, that's not including merchandising or any of the advertising revenue or product placement. Of which oh. there was a lot. Oh Disney, maybe maybe Disney will announce um, we're cancelling all our current projects. We're going to be making small indie movies from now on that are heartwarming. That or they'll cancel everything and put all of their collective budgets into Infinity War. So it'll be a five-hour each, ten-hour-long, five-year, everlasting. Oh, so much money! It, it, it this is kind of yeah. Film industry is Wait, just so hang on. They're pumping in a billion dollars in Infinity War. How much does that need to make to be a financial equivalent of success? Three billion. Oh, maybe uh, it definitely has to. Okay, definitely more than Avengers one. Uh, more than more billion. than Titanic, which was one point eight billion, uh, Avatar is the record holder at two point eight, two point nine billion. So I think that they, high. yeah, I think they I want know. to. I knew it was two. Yeah, yeah. So that that that's Avatar's most uh, highly most highest grossing film ever. It, it was uh, most pirated film ever. Name the main character. Josh. Jake. Close oh, enough. Okay. Then name the female lead, the the Navi woman he falls in love with. Zoe Saldana. Yeah, that's the actor's name. Uh, well, what's her character's name? What's the villain's name? Zoe Zelda. It's 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 amazing how how many people saw that movie, but how forgettable so much of it was. Even though it was visually amazing, it was just yeah. No one. Robert had a giant knife. That was pretty good. Oh yeah, that was class. But um, yeah, in general though, kind of that this is kind of the thing. They're making these big blockbusters, huge budgets, huge box office takes. But um, where is the heart? Are we believing anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Smart and Scorsese said, I don't think it's a belief anymore. No, oh, the way he says it, you know. Um, 
I, I just something to think about anyway. Like you know, this this seems to be the direction the film industry is going in. Steven Spielberg it's always been the way it went. It's, 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 it's Steven Spielberg thinks it's clo- it's a bubble close to bursting though. Like well, he, he said that. that last year, and everyone panics like, oh my god, Spielberg said it. But like you know, yes, uh, Spielberg, the to... most relevant filmmaker still working. I will not hear a word against him. He was okay. Uh, I just he's been very boring the last few years. Cease your mouth moving. Uh... And now we have a quick interview with the director of The Lobster by our own Jonathan Victory. Have you thought of what animal you'd like to be if you end up alone? Yes, a lobster. A lobster is an excellent choice. You did get a very strong cast together for the movie. Like even aside from the lead actors, the the whole ensemble is really strong. Like I, I could spend the rest of the interview just talking about <laughs> specific actors, and um, I'm I'm just wondering how you, you and the casting director are going about making sure the entire cast is strong. And like, was it down to the strength of the script in your previous films that a lot of people were drawn to it, or was was did you have a brief for the casting director in terms of specific people to approach or? No, it's hard for me to have a specific brief because um, when we write the screenplays, there, there's not even very uh, detailed descriptions of the character. So we barely mention the age or... They rarely have names either. Yeah, they rarely have names. This time around they did. But um, uh, yeah, so I try to leave it as open as possible because I want to be free afterwards after I've completed the screenplay. Uh, to just think of people that I'd like to work with and see if they can somehow fit within this world that we're creating and uh, then figure out the the chemistry between them. Mm. Um, so I try to leave it as open as possible. So, it, And for me, it's just, you know, uh, finding people again instinctively that I feel are right for the part and they, you know, one choice from the other might be completely different. So it's hard to have like a... Mm a general brief about this character because you know I might like this actor and then I might like an actor who's like 20 years older and bold and whatever and so it's it's really hard and uh, yeah the, the process we followed was you know think of people that I'd love to work with uh, find a way of um, figuring out their place in the in the in the in the film and uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to have a body of work before which was relatively known to them. And uh, yeah, giving them the script, it was very straightforward to to get the people that were interested in uh, be part of this film. Surprisingly easy, actually. Well, in terms of building chemistry between the actors, would that come in during the audition process? Or is that what, once you have a good actor cast for a role, you know, they're going to make it work? Or? Yeah, it's, uh, it's just, the, the, you know, the idea you have about them. So, uh, mm. and be, uh, be, because most of them, I mean, we couldn't bring them together and try them out, see if there was chemistry. Uh, you just, you know, you have a lot of, I mean, for most of these actors, you have so much, so many samples of work that you can just figure out whether something works or not. And I also like to, when I'm I'm thinking of casting an actor, I watch a lot of their interviews and see pictures online and stuff. So to see them in other other things other than you know being in a role in a film, just to see how they, a different aspect you know of them. So I, I make sure that I I have enough. Uh, information for me to be able to make that decision. Mm. Um, I, I, I do like how uh, 
weird the movie is in a consistent way. I mean, you could look at another director like uh, David Lynch and his movies are weird, but they're quite surreal and they'll go from one thing to another. But the, the world this movie is set in has an internal logic to it or like it's 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 strange but it has a consistency throughout i was just wondering is is in in approaching the screenplay and then filming it is there is there a way to maintain that consistency or is it is it just by trusting kind of the, the story you're telling um yeah i think we, we we strive to have that from the beginning uh and it's also the way we know how to progress you know uh, from the moment we have an idea you know, much of it then uh, is uh, evolves uh, with logic. You know, just w we try to get into the logic of you know the world and the characters. So everything springs from that, and it's just not ideas. You know, from wherever or the unconscious or subconscious or so. You know, much of it after you have a, an initial structure, uh, it's it just logic. Is what you know? What would the if these people that created this system, so what would they do about this thing? What would they do about that thing? What can the character do, you know, to, to leave from this point and go to the other point? And so it's just, because it is based on logic, no, no matter how, you know, absurd the world might be or the rules, then it, because it's based on logic, uh, mm -hmm. I think there's a, a certain consistency. Yeah, like as if you can, um, the rules of the universe can be as weird as you want them to be, as long as you don't break the rules. Yeah, then you have to follow them. <laughs> okay. Um, no, but I mean, the, the, this world, the concept gets across very well with, um, like, two extremes that are contrasted, where the hotel demands companionship and the loners especially forbid it. And... Um, I really found Leia Sidhu's character interesting when she was the, the leader of the Loner's Resistance, but they were taking to sort of trying to fight against the hotel and like committing acts of sabotage or terrorism or, or whatever you'd call it. Which is the thing that struck me about that was that they're in a way they're fighting against a society that has accepted this belief that single people will be turned into animals and while they might sort of get some petty victories against the hotel, if all of society is kind of thinking about this, I was just wondering how could you, if, if, if one decided that it was wrong for single people to be turned into animals, what could you really do about it? And I, I was just thinking, like say for example, like economic paradigms, you know, if all societies accepted it, and this is very relevant to Greece and Ireland right now, I mean, is, is that kind of issue in terms of like society tolerates something that's actually quite weird and you don't want to be involved in it, is, is that another issue that was consciously coming up uh, when you were thinking of this story? Um, uh, not consciously, but I, I understood, and that's why it was important for me to include the other side, the opposition, those people that would be opposed to how the, the world was uh, organized and constructed. Uh, obviously, that's, you know, creating a, a, a complete world uh, obviously creates a political aspect of it as well. So that political aspect you can associate it with, you know, equivalents in 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 real life outside the world that we've created in the film. So I was aware that, and that was one of the strengths of how we structured the film that it does relate and and it, it makes the film political without it having to actually refer to anything. Mm. Uh, political um, and obviously you know the you know the loners in the film are like any other smaller group that you know is trying to change things that might seem um, 
uh, helpless or, you know, again, in real life, I mean, there are those people that have different views and they are trying to somehow with different, uh, using different means to make them heard or somehow affect uh, the norm, you know, what's around them. I mean, what also happens a lot in life with those kind of people is that they end up having extreme rules themselves. Yeah. <laughs> so it does end up happening where it's the other extreme where um, you can't have any relationship at all. So it, it's kind of so then I suppose the central relationships you can call Farrell and Rachel Weisz's characters, where they fall in love and it's organic. It's not forced because there's a deadline, uh, but at the same time it's against the rules of this other group they join. So. I suppose it is about you know people like that who are trying to determine their own lives, but um, when they're dealing with these pervasive political influences, like you know you, you know what, what what hope is there for them? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's exactly what the film yeah the about. ending is left open, I suppose. Although the, the the sound of waves in the credits, like is it is that supposed to be a kind of hint or not? <laughs> uh, no, it's supposed to be as open. Uh, as possible in order for different people to think of different things about it because I mean it is open and uh, we just try to include things like the sound in the credits that again are quite open you know it's it could be a memory it could be you know the future it could be anything so uh, I, I like it because I see you know when, when people talk about the ending you know you, you kind of you can tell certain things about them, you know, and they can tell things about themselves, about how they, how they have decided what happens in the end, or they're not decided, or you see if they're optimistic or pessimistic about life and love in general, and mm. so I, I find that quite interesting. I mean, the ending for me, I, I think it also spoke to an uncertainty that even if you do find a relationship where there is organic love, there's still a bit of uncertainty about it. Do you have self-doubt? You have, you're questioning. Um, you know, the other person, uh, you know, if they're coming back or not, or how they will, and, you know, so I suppose even in the situation where you do find a relationship, is there a kind of uncertainty and loneliness? Yeah, well? and, and also the, the difficulty, because, I mean, also, if he, even if he takes his out, eyes out and they can be together in the, that world, I mean, there's going to be difficulty, and, you know, these two blind people, you know, walking around in that, that world, that would be difficult, and how can they survive that? So, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's about trying to include, you know, every aspect of, you know, being uh, in that kind of relationship and trying to identify love and, and what you're prepared to do for it. So, Richard, uh, what did you think of my interview with uh, the director of The Lobster, Jorgis Lanthimos? It's okay. I like bits when you weren't talking. Why am I still single? Anyway, uh, will we do reviews? Yeah. Okay, uh, let's talk about the lobster first. It would seem poignant. Poignant? No, it, it would seem pointy. Prescient. Yeah. The word. Words. I think it's a good point. The lobster point. is a word. It's a the good... film contains other words. <laughs> yeah, okay, a film is a moving image where people talk and stuff. I think uh, they probably know the basics of that, but I mean, what did you think of the lobster as a film? This, this is, of course, the movie where... Um, it's set in a world where if you're single, you are sent to a hotel and you have 40 days to find a partner, and if you don't, you are I'll turned into you an animal. Is that actually the plot? Are you sent there or do you volunteer to go there? Because I wasn't clear on that in the movie. I initially thought you volunteer to go there if you're just perpetually single. But then, the way that society seems to be working, I was confused as to whether or not you were like forced to go there or volunteered. I think throughout the movie, there are police stopping people, asking to see their registration if they have an assigned partner. This is, this is a dystopian world, basically, where um, I think people are forced to go to this hospital. 
hospital, hotel, and uh, they are surgically transformed into an animal if uh, they don't find a partner. Well, so this is a whole that, dark... that technology exists. <laughs> Oh, it's but it's a whole dark satire basically on modern dating and well I still haven't seen the trailer for this I'd heard the setup weeks ago and thought that sounds like a weird quirky Wes Anderson style thing and I'm wondering if the trailer depicts it as a comedy or a drama or what because I went into this thinking it'll be a quirky quirky comedy with a bit of a little bit of like satire darkness and then that was certainly the first I don't know twenty minutes and it gets so much stranger than even that setup alone implies. Like, that's the first third of the movie, probably. And then it takes another turn, and, like, Leia Seto's character into it, and it just it keeps escalating in very weird and strange <laughs> yeah. ways. Le Leia Seydu is fantastic because she just looks evil her. all the time. No, but oh, yeah, no, she was great. I hated her great. character. I think another, another thing to say about this movie, um, the cast is so strong, like even all the minor characters, mm -hmm. it, 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 like, and I think a lot of movies they wouldn't think that through. They they would just like, oh, we'll get some. They're not as important as like the main characters, but this is like a really great ensemble piece. I'd have to mention the whole cast to do it justice, but just like you have like um, Ashley Jensen and Olivia Coleman and Rachel Weisz, and um, Ben Whishaw, John C. Riley. John C. Riley. There's there's so many people in this movie. It's a, it's a very international cast and. Uh, Someone from EastEnders, I think, was in there. But the, it, it's kind of, it's set in this world where very few of the characters have names. They're called, like, a nosebleed woman, or, you, you, you know, they're, they're, or, I didn't even notice, that's a good point, yeah. Or, like, short-sighted short woman is Rachel Weisz's character's name. And, but they all have different accents, but they're all in this one hotel shot in the west of Ireland in Kerry, so um, this is an Irish co-production, and they actually make pretty good use of Irish locations, because it's not set in a specific place, but it's... They make it. They have a good contrast between like futuristic-looking locations in Dublin. I assume somewhere near the Grand Canal and uh, the places in Kerry Woods. They're shooting it in Kerry. It's um, it has a very international feel to it. And I suppose the subject matter, you know, doesn't concern like one nation. It's you know this sort of modern anxiety over dating is something we're all facing. Um, I don't know, I think the movie works, but it is very weird throughout, and it is at least sort of consistently weird. The rules of the universe say consistent, but it I, is I'm hard strange. to say if it does work, because I really enjoyed it. Like, it was so strange, but it felt like a weird sort of reverse YA dystopia, where, like, you know you have, like, your Hunger Games or your Divergent, yeah. or do you have to say Divergent? Divergent. Um, That's how I pronounce it, but... Uh, um, where it, it's always these... Adolescence in quite adult situations where the situation itself is a metaphor for high school, whereas this was more like actual adults in a high school scenario that was a metaphor for adult situations. And it was really weird, like it's all this high school nonsense of who's dating who, over the first half an hour, isn't it? And the whole hotel set was so bizarre, and it feels like an endless kind of 1950s prom, and you have, what's her name again, the actress that played like the maitre d' of the hotel? Uh, Olivia Coleman from like nice. that Mitchell and Webb look and Peep Show and stuff, and she's I mean, great. She's this. fantastic. She's terrifying. She's absolutely yeah. terrifying. And I don't understand what she. The first half, like, who is she? She runs she's a, a hotel. Yeah, she yeah. runs a hotel, but she runs like a principal in some weird boarding school, and they have these like, weird displays on the stage where they demonstrate how women get raped if they're alone, but they don't if they're with someone. Yeah. <laughs> but it's all played for laughs. And there was one bit where I was I couldn't stop laughing, and you actually turned to me and go, "That's not funny. Why are you laughing?" But a character attempts suicide, but it's such like a pathetic. I don't mean this like like disparaging towards suicide. I mean it's just it's like visually it's pathetic what happens. Like she's just lying on the ground bleeding and screaming, while another character sits staring at her for a solid minute, just sipping her tea 
I, the image is so incongruous and so bizarre, and the movie's tone is so all over the place. Oh. It is a dark comedy, if we could make that clear. This might not be for everyone, but... Um... But it is definitely a comedy, and that's... that's. If I have one issue with it, and that's probably it, it's that Farrell's performance is deeply odd. Initially, I was kind It's of... meant to be. No, it is meant to be. Initially, I was kind of amused by it, but as it went on, I realised it wasn't going to end, that he was going to keep talking in this weird, stilted manner with these odd... Mm-hmm. He sounded like a bit like Google, Google from Father Ted. That's what I couldn't stop mm-hmm. thinking of. It sounded like Arvo Hannum. But all of his dialogue felt like... Black Books era Bernard Black improv, like bad improv. It like it's so See, weird. All, all I don't the understand characters... how this was written, how he was directed, how this was acted. It's uh... Uh, how how it was written was that all these characters speak in a very stilted, matter of fact way. Uh, how it was directed it stand is that out for I thought Rachel Weisz's narration really stands out to me. She oh, yeah, talks like this. It is a very strange speech pattern. Like and every it's... time she does the same, like ten seconds of music stain plays over it in a very uh, eyes wide shut esque manner. You see, I, I suppose, and just from from talking to the director about it, he, he was just sort of saying it is about just this situation is so weird. It's just being very matter of fact about it. So that's why all the all the all delivery of every line is so monotone. Like even in very tense scenes, and I mean it's. You know, it's it's it is bizarre nonsense, but the stakes are high. You're going to be turned into an animal in this horrible, you know, messed up world you're in. So I th- I think in a way it's kind of the, there is there is a lot of understatement for you know a, a scenario that's completely horrifying. And um, I I it's it definitely stands out. It's distinctive. I I think it's it's worth seeing if you're of a certain uh, mindset. I guess that's the thing. Like, who is this for? Who would you recommend this to? I have no idea. I think, you see, I think if you tell people, oh, it's about anxieties around modern dating, there's probably something in the movie I mean, for everyone. Yeah, there's probably one moment bad. that will refer to someone, you know, and, and some anxiety they have, whether they're in a relationship or outside a relationship, or they decide, oh, I'm just not going to date anyone, I'm just going to be alone. Uh, you know, there's, all this kind of stuff is addressed in the movie. There's, like, there's, like, even a bit early on where he's, like, asking, um, it, it, do, do I have to be in a heterosexual, you know, option is there a bisexual or homosexual option they tell him sorry the bisexual option was too uh, complicated yeah. yeah so you have to pick homosexual or heterosexual that that's a kind of it's it's, it's a short moment in the movie but it's all about bi erasure and how bisexuality isn't treated seriously as a sexual well, yeah, the whole film is about binaries like even there's a scene right after that one where he's getting his shoe size and he asks for i think nine and a half and they go there's no half sizes and like even that's yeah. the further it's everything has to be this binary choice and I think it's I think it's a really good movie. It's oh, just it's weird. It's, it's just, yeah. And it just if you do like black comedy, the violence is so sudden and like flatly shot that is incredibly funny. There's a bit near the end. I won't say who, which character, or which, but you probably recall it when someone gets hit by a rock in their sleep very suddenly. But this like the shot never changes. It's just this one flat static image of someone sleeping, someone else running by and bashing their skull in with a rock. And it's really funny, but it's really, I don't know why it's funny, like, I find violence funny, I'll admit that, but it's this movie, like, that suicide scene should not have been funny, but it was so funny. You didn't think so, I know, but I haven't laughed that hard in a long time. Disturbed, man. (laughs) But yeah, no, I... So so Colin Farrell's career is on the up, it seems, he's doing interesting work like this. Well, I was going to bring that up, yes, he's very good in The Lobster, I just... Think you a lot of weird choices that he made in it, but another recent film which I think is hopefully gone cinemas by now, so it's not dirtying up the place. 
Solace, starring Anthony Hopkins and Colin Farrell. Wow, so he's making a movie with Anthony Hopkins. I think, you know, so this is like a, a reconnaissance for Colin Farrell, right? Because, you know, he's, he, he did his best in True Detective Season 2. He's in The Lobster now. Tell us about Solace. This is another good, great movie in his clean Solace, street. Just or, tell us how bad it was. Or as I choose to call it, Psychic Police. Um, <laughs> it's now, I've heard this rumour. Allegedly, there is there was talk uh, two decades ago, probably, of a sequel to Seven being made. And I think the script was actually commissioned and written where Morgan Freeman's character from Seven would have gone on to solve further crimes, but he would have had psychic powers. This was obviously quite quickly shelved and ignored, and David Fincher it's probably burned It's not alluded to in Seven at all. Oh, man. He kind of got hit in the head, you don't know, or eaten what's-her-face's head. And With a rock or, or like something. Um, okay, yeah, no, I'm, anyway. I'm happy I interrupted you there, because your theory was much more disgusting. Can we just move on and talk about Solace? Like, anyway, so the rumour is that this is that script. They just changed the name, or the Seven Connection, and Anthony Hopkins is playing the Warren Freeman character. So the basic plot is that uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan is a cop. He has a partner who is a lady cop. Actually, I don't know who she was or what her name was. She was known of note. Great. She's the main character, but I've forgotten about the character name, and I think maybe I took it down. In any case... Um, <laughs> <laughs> is this a very memorable film, or...? In some ways, yes. Let me get... Let me try and get my cost the other one for the notes. Here we are, yes. In any case... <laughs> so, they're hunting a serial killer who seems to know their every move. He seems to be three steps ahead of them, so they go to find retired Anthony Hopkins, who is uh, a psych police, in his little house, because his wife... No, his daughter died. Um, she died of some thing that psychicness wouldn't help. Leukemia or cancer or something. What was the baseball? <laughs> that's a shame. Psychic powers can help you with so much, but like, oh, that that the illness, yeah. No, that's, that's where Man of Steel fell down. They should have had his father die of a heart attack, not in a tornado for no reason. Sorry. So anyway, they go to them. Uh, they go to Anthony Hopkins and get him to come in, and it becomes readily apparent that the psych or the serial killer they're hunting, who turns out to be Colin Farrell, who doesn't show up for the last half an hour for some reason, is also psychic and. The film is absolute nonsense. Anthony Hopkins is dreadful. I have not seen him this bad in many years. Like, I've always been a big fan of his, his non-committed Thor performances. where he, <laughs> but It makes sense there where he's meant to be this really old man. So yeah, sure, he's monotone and says nothing. In this film, he just potters around as if he didn't know what the script was. As if they hired him, he read through one draft of the script. Uh, grand, I can do that. Came in on set and improv all of his dialogue. It's the worst. Which is funny because Jeffrey Dean Morgan is really like giving it his all. Which then makes sense about halfway through and he abruptly dies of cancer uh, out of nowhere. After being shot in the cancer, I guess? It's really unclear why he dies or how he dies. He gets shot in the middle of a police raid and then the next scene dies of cancer, which you, you hadn't found out he had in that scene. Right. <laughs> well, Anthony Hopkins, who clearly shot his scenes with the death scene at a different point in time, probably a different room, sort of looks non-committally towards the mid-range of the cameras there. At least tell me our national treasure Colin Farrell acquits himself from this. He actually does. He's the best thing in it. Um, okay. It, it's, it's, it's annoying that he doesn't show up until the last half an hour because once he shows up and him and Andy Hopkins are having their psychic battles which amounts to... It's not far off. It basically amounts to Andy Hopkins walking through car parks and lonely streets while Colin Farrell somehow projects images of alternate reality into his head. So like he'll walk through a car park and see a hundred different Colin Farrells walking different directions. Kind of, you know, him saying, like, which one's the real one? You know, follow me, Anthony, whatever his name is, Bill or something. No, that was not It feels like they basically took several episodes of different TV shows 
and just stitch them together. Because every 20 minutes or so, it feels like it's going to end in a sort of, and like, coming up next week. But it just keeps going, and it, it's so weirdly structured and badly written. Also, the writing isn't that bad. Hopkins is so dreadful. Maybe there's a bunch of pit failed pilots, and they stitched them together into this deformity, or... That wouldn't surprise me, but if the seven thing is true, it explains why there's so many incongruous 90s things. Like, there's there's all this weird sort of... Um, what's the term for? Again, sort of, it's still one of coming out. Uh, not, kind of... Uh, What's the name for when you're making jokes about how scary gayness is? <laughs> what is it like ironic homophobia? No, 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 no. Like when because homophobia, not homophobia. Uh, being gay at one point is a plot point which is used to demonstrate to some really incredulous-looking future extras, uh, Anthony Hopkins' psychic powers. They're interviewing like a guy they've arrested as a murder suspect, yeah. and his alibi. Oh, it's worse. Up. He's gay. No, no, his alibi doesn't stand up, and, and the way Anthony Hopkins demonstrates that he knows the alibi doesn't stand up is, oh, because you weren't really home that night. You were having an affair, weren't you? Yes, but not with a woman. Uh, it, there's all this sort of queer fear weirdness, and then AIDS gets mentioned a few times in a very straight. Like no one mentions AIDS. Anymore. Maybe this is a really old script for the Asian. That's what I mean. If, it's, if it is the seventh script, it makes sense. If it came from the ninth, it makes sense. Because the idea generally isn't bad, and once you get to the last 20 minutes, and Colin Farrell shows up and starts kind of playing it over, like he's a bit camp in it, but he's fun, and it's all like making Jesus yeah. poses. So in summary, don't go see Solace. Or do, it's terrible. Uh, Jonathan, you have seen good movies of late, have you not? Yeah, well the, the movie out recently, Suffragette, um, uh, it portrays the Suffragette movement for uh, women's right to vote. You know what Suffragettes were, but I uh, what I find odd is that there hasn't this movie took so long to make like am i forgetting some <clears throat> movies that have been about suffragettes that have been made or probably some indie movie made by a french man somewhere yeah because i was just thinking like for it to take a century to have excuse me to take a century to have this kind of movie made about suffragettes called suffragettes um yeah i don't know i, I just felt like that took a while um but you know it, it the t- it the, it does deal with historical characters, but it goes the route of having a composite character, which uh, we spoke about earlier. Stonewall, you you kind of need the um, audience point of view character to see all this stuff happening. So, I mean, but you but you have Meryl Streep playing Emmeline Pankhurst in it, who 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 was a well known suffragette. You could have just made the movie about her. There was another actor in this movie, uh, Natalie Press. Do you know of her, Richard? Do I? Well, she was. Uh, she played the lesbian lover of Emily Blunt in a art house movie ten or eleven years ago called My Summer of Love. I've Emily Emily Blunt has since gone on to be in Hollywood movies, and rightly so. Natalie Press has not, and that's a shame because she's a damn good actor. And in this movie, she plays a suffragette very important in the history of the suffragette movement called Emily Davison. Now, if you know who she is, you will know that she does something incredibly badass and courageous for the suffragette movement. If you don't know who she is, I don't want to spoil it for the movie. Uh, in case you want to go see it, um, <clears throat> if you don't, if you do go see it, it, they could have made the movie about Emily Davison or Emily Pankhurst. Instead, we follow Carrie Mulligan's character, and I, I suppose the advantage of having a composite character in an historical movie like this is, you know, they can interact with the historical figures, and all the important stuff can happen to one character. So you get the like riot police scene and the force feeding scene and so on. It just, I'm. I'm not sure it it like does justice to the movement. You could have had a better movie out of this. It's it's fine. It's probably what they're going to show you in history class when the teacher's hung over one day. But um, 
I don't know. Was it wasn't? Yeah, I I I felt like it could have been a more badass movie given how badass these women were. And, Please stop calling them badass women. It's such an overused trope. Yo, but um, yeah. So um, suffragettes. It is about an important topic, so I suppose go see it. But you know, it's it's not going to be the most uh, groundbreaking, mind blowing movie. It's 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 a pretty. It's not that an interesting look at the issue, which which is a very interesting issue to look at. So I think it just. I'm just saying it deserved a better movie. Um, very good movie which showed at Sundance this year and was a big hit was called Dope and I loved this movie. This was, I don't think it's out in the cinemas anymore, it was too short in the cinema. Not enough people saw it. It is a great... The has turned me off so maybe that's what happened. It's about uh, these South Central Los Angeles teenagers who are nerds, they're outsiders. When through various mishaps there are drugs misplaced in their bags, no one suspects them of being involved in anything like that because they're such dorks, so they have to find a way to sell off the drugs. Imagine if The Wire or Breaking Bad or some such show was directed by Wes Anderson. You kind of get a sense, it's, it, it works so well, it's it, great, it, 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 it covers a lot of important issues around masculinity and race and pop culture and so on, and I, I it's probably going to be my top 10 best movies this year, if not my top five, so you definitely should catch up on that if you haven't seen it yet. Well, I won't. Um, moving on to Macbeth, which we'll very quickly talk about. Everyone knows the plot. Everyone knows in it. It's fine. It's pretty good. It looks really nice. The sound is great. Like, the soundtrack is great. Fastbender is fine. I still think, narratively, his Descent into Madness is way too fast, which it always is in that play. They don't really try and add any extra scenes to make it more satisfying. Caltiari is pretty good. She's brilliant for one scene for the civilian boy in the church. That's fantastic. Highlight the movie. The rest of it's pretty grand. Jack Rayner is, as a friend of mine said, looks like a giant baby on a horse. <laughs> uh, he's, he's an odd-looking man, and he doesn't get much to do, and his accent isn't very good. And yes. Yeah, okay. it's kind of <clears throat> yeah. As adaptations go, it's not the best one I've seen. Orson Welles did a better one. Roman Polanski did a better one. Even though a lot of the movie is very visually interesting and it yeah. does these battle scenes which are like Braveheart meets 300 and it possibly gives a new angle to the Descent into Madness which is the idea that Macbeth is a soldier of post-traumatic stress disorder. Like that's a possible guess, way of reading yeah. it. Fassbender, even though it is like rushed as it usually is though, he, he plays it very well. There are certain like moments of the play that adapt well but on the whole it's kind of... It's kind of bland, you know, it wasn't that, it didn't really, you know, grab you the way it should have, and, uh, yeah, so, that's a bit of a thing. Another film we both had somewhat middling opinions on, American Ultra, written by Max Landis, directed by someone, I can't remember who, no one of note, and starring Kristen Stewart and... Jesse Eisenberg. The movie's not that notable either, though. No, it was about a stoner no. who is... Well, yeah, finds out he's a kind of Jason Bourne, Bourne. Stone, yeah. he's, you know, he's been brainwashed to forget he's an agent, but, uh... They want to then take him out, so it's then the, the hilarious situation where like he, you think he's just a skinny, lanky stoner, and he's getting threatened, then all of a sudden his adrenaline kicks in, and he kills these guys, and then he's going, oh my god, I killed these guys. It's that kind of like comedy, action slash comedy. I don't think either element works quite well, and they certainly don't get the balance right. There are like short bursts of comedy, and the rest of the movie is like super serious. It doesn't, it doesn't work. I think the balance is fine, it's just the writing, and I kind of have this problem with Max Landis in general. I like his writing and his humour in theory, but it doesn't really work out that well here. It's trying to be both, in my mind, the two films I kept thinking of are Kick-Ass and Burn After Reading. And it's not as good as either of those movies. Like, the CIA stuff is funny, 
probably the funniest bit of the movie, but it's still not that funny. And the <laughs> the ultra violence is nowhere near as good as Kick Ass. I feel like if someone like Matthew, not Matthew Vaughn, but Matthew Vaughn, or but James Gunn had directed this, it could have been a lot better. My other issue is that I feel like what they should have done was because you get a kind of coda at the end of the movie where it shows. Stuart and Eisenberg on a mission where he like accepted his fate as an agent. Oh, we're so sorry for spoiling it. The film literally opens with anyway. Um... Yeah, no, because it's. It, I mean, this is a great movie, but you do have a point about this last scene. No, yeah, it, that's actually quite fun. That last scene where he is an agent for the government, and it's. I feel like what should have happened was the first two thirds of the movie could have been him on the run to small town America, and then the last third should have just been a mission that he was on that would have been a much more satisfying conclusion with a bigger ramp up. I still think the ultra violence is fun enough, but it's 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 no kick ass. It's no kick ass two. It's no Kingsman. It's no super. It's it's. Fine. Yeah, no. I mean, with that kind of movie needs the tone to be right, and it needs to be consistent, and it needs to be good meshing of the different elements of it. Yeah. And um, yeah, this movie has an interesting idea, but it's not executed that well. Exactly. So moving on to a bigger release of recent times, The Martian, Ridley Scott's return to form as everyone on Earth seems to be claiming. Mm-hmm. Let me just say right out of the gate, yes it's good, yes I enjoyed it, but I will never watch it again, and I would rather watch Prometheus again. Like, Prometheus is objectively a worse movie, but it's more interesting. The Martian is nothing. It is surface, start to finish, which is you know, an apt title. It's just so empty. It's a good like action thriller thing, but it's... Would you watch that again? I would. I would be bored. Like, I would. Really. This is a very good depiction of science in that it. I. I, I love but movies. But it's a crap sci-fi. About. It's it's about competent people using science and being rewarded for it. I kind of I like that as opposed to say I don't know like horror movies where stupid people are punished for stupidity. This is kind of it's surprising how this movie kind of. It doesn't go too sci-fi route. It it it's it's sci-fi at all. There's no subtext. It's about nothing. It's it's about people cooperating. It's about people using science. It's about someone trying to remain unflappable in a really dark situation. And uh, I I th- I think there's a lot going on in terms of, you know, it's it's not just you might get the impression looking at the posters or trailers or whatever that's just Matt Damon on Mars for two hours. It's not because because that would get really tiresome. What it does is it shows some of him that'll show some of the efforts on from NASA and different space agencies. You know, having coordinated effort trying to get him back home and. The, the ensemble works, like, really well, because all the yeah, characters are quite funny. There's no, like, kind of, for there's no, like, antagonist on Earth who's like, oh, it's going to cost too much money to bring him back, and money is important. There's, like, there's no kind of added, you know, tension like that. There's no, like, sort of, like... There is something else, though, which is very frequent in modern blockbusters, which is the cooperation of the Chinese government. <laughs> which I'm sure is just, you know, complete coincidence, <laughs> nothing to do with uh, China only releasing 20 Western movies a year. This version of that particular trope, opposed to, they say, Iron Man 3 or Transformers 5, 4, 11, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it was, I thought there was a lot more, made a lot more sense narratively, and it didn't, I didn't feel like it beat me over the head with it as much as the likes of the Iron Man 3 alternate scenes did. Which aren't even released over here, it doesn't matter. Um, like, when they did it, I was like, oh, they got the China for help, that makes sense. Uh, no, wait a minute, China for help, modern blockbuster, international funding. Um, the conspiracy I think, blew up in front of me, but it, it, it didn't hamper the film, and I do think, like, I'm not saying it's bad, I really did enjoy it while I was watching it, but it was just so hollow, it was just... Did you like how it didn't take itself too seriously? Yes. Like, after Gravity and Interstellar, no, just, because space is so awe-inspiring, I think if a director makes a movie set in space, they might get big-headed, try to tackle some big themes. Maybe the fact that this movie does do things in a matter-of-fact way, and it's just about, oh, we need to rescue this person, and it doesn't get too, like, quote-unquote deep, 
and it actually kind of even just in the soundtrack lots of disco music from jessica chastain's character's laptop yeah. you know you don't expect to hear that in a space movie it doesn't take itself too seriously but it is very fun very intelligent and is easily the best movie ridley scott has made this decade anyway so probably but his flawed films were interesting like i love hannibal i love prometheus like neither of those films are like that well then hannibal's pretty good uh, prometheus is obviously a mess but it's so much more interesting there's so much more there's more ideas in it i just the martian as a populist piece of cinema making wank 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 noises because well, that's the wrong noise to make. Yeah. <laughs> you know, fappy noises because I'm making a point here about that. I think what he's trying to say is, is that I he... may be a pretentious dick is what I'm saying, but I if I see a sci-fi movie, especially when I see all the good reviews, I expect it to have something going on. There is not a subtext in this movie. The film is about nothing. It's about if you want to push it, it's about you know the unbreakable human spirit. And I will say it's about science and problem it's solving. It's not about science though. Science is merely a plot element. It is not about science. It's, it's about, about it the process. It's science. about the process of identifying problems and uh, solving them like systematically one after another. You know, and I think that's something that you know, given how scientifically illiterate a lot of like. America is, if we were to judge by its politicians, <laughs> I think Neil deGrasse Tyson, Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, said something funny. He's like, you know, you know, the Martian is science fiction because all the people in important positions of decision making power are scientifically literate. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's about like, you know, you can, you can do things because so many sci-fi movies or like movies in general are just about like, oh, science is bad. You'll discover something and it'll have unintended consequences. Whereas this, this is a movie about like, okay, there are unintended consequences, but you can work your way through problems. And, um, I like I I think it just it worked you know, you know all, the, all the emotional beats of it and everything and yeah, um, I'd, I'd recommend it I think I would watch it again yeah I'd recommend it would watch it again I, I will say it's funny if you're a fan of the television show Community that Donald Glover is in this movie and he plays a character who is a who's basically Danny Danny Boone's character Abed from Community which is funny because if you watch Community they're best friends and using the same manners and transfer would would you have preferred if the Martian had some kind of alien skull somewhere or the, this is actually going to be part of the Prometheus continuity or that have like ruined it because it works so well as a standalone thing but people were kind of thinking oh wait what if this is all a ruse and it's actually just about alien again there were seconds in the movie where I was getting a little bit bored with it where I was thinking if this was just like a really subtle Mass Effect prequel and they find the the ruins of Mars, that would be kind of cool, and then they find that now they won't. <laughs> so part of me was thinking that. I, I don't need it to be a big sci-fi thing, but I need to have something in there. Like, it needs to be about something. It's just about nothing. It's a fun action drama thriller or whatever, but it's just, it's so hollow. So <laughs> That was like, <laughs> It's great. Go see it. I will say, though, because like, we had a discussion before, which I just quickly have here, uh, like, neither of us have seen Everest or The Walk. And I do not want to see either of those movies. But they're also about, you know, the spirit. But The Martian makes sense, because here's what I hate with the walk from the trailer. Is that there's that one moment in the trailer where Joseph Gordon Levitt, you know, like his French accent, is saying, Oh, I do not know if I can walk across the wire when I have to say, then don't. No one's making you do this. The mafia doesn't have a gun to your baby's head saying, <laughs> Walk between the twin towers and we will kill them. No, it's him having to do it of his own back and then go, oh, maybe I can't do it. To inspire people that maybe they do, do the walks. impossible. No. So it doesn't have to be specifically doing the stupid thing of walking on a cable that that really dangerous height, but it's just in general, just sort of like, you know, believe or... No, nonsense. I mean, climbing Everest is... Not, I mean, we were basically... You know, Everest is better. We are basically saying, but that's trying to climb the tallest mountain in the world, that is just an act of ego. It's not like... Yeah, the It's not like, you know an apartheid movie where you're fighting an unjust cause. It's not like The Martian where you're only in this dangerous situation by accident. Exactly. You're kind the of Martian talking about... Because it's, it's him trying to do science 
and then being by accident and through like no force of his own, being put in a situation where he has to science the way out of it using his own initiative. That's fine. Everest is then going, let's do this really dangerous thing. Oh no, it's gone wrong. We have to get out of our own initiative. But you put yourself in that position. Like it isn't even a film about the first people that climb Everest. Mm. So it's about like commercial climbers. So it's even less. Oh, it's, I mean, we can't recommend or not recommend no. Everest in the Walk. We haven't Everest seen them, both but good. this is. I don't want to see them though. <laughs> Yeah, that is an issue, that the triumph of the human spirit, because it, it is such a worn theme. How do you approach it as a storyteller? You do the immersion of it. You don't do it with the walk. We've got it, let's go, oh no! Make the French legs out of the way. Enough of that before we get sued by France. <laughs> <laughs> the people of France versus the film artists podcast. <laughs> before we move on to John Victory's film, Irish Film Corner, which is a segment for the day and today only, uh, quickly, Hopefully let's, recording let's do Sicario. <laughs> Which Ooh, yes. I think we both really loved. I, I kind of knew from the trailer going in, it should be good, and I love that director, his name I've also forgotten. Daniel Volunouf. He's some Those syllables, yes. Quebec French guy from Canada. Yeah. Uh, if you recall, listeners, uh, I put Enemy Down as my film of the year last year, because it was, and he's a great director. That is so. a great movie. See that, see Enemy. So, it's about cartels, it's basically a Breaking Bad style situation, where it's all drugs and stuff, but it's shot and scored and acted and played like a horror movie. Even that opening sequence in the house, we see all those bodies. Like I laughed at one point. You can look at me. And I wasn't laughing at the body. I was laughing at like how quickly it's it escalated. It seemed a bit, yeah. Bar. It seemed a bit like the TV show Hannibal or something. That's just when I saw the grin something on your like face. That, yeah. That's just what I thought. I wasn't it, expecting that because it starts crazy. off with Emily Blunt as a is a SWAT cop, I guess, um, and they discover all these bodies in this house in Arizona. So there's an investigation. There's an investigation anyway that you know extends across the Mexican border, but she kind of realizes something's not right about it. Uh, it works really well because I kind of I tend to have a hard time following crime movies because it's all like um, okay we've got a shipment coming in and there's going to be crimey stuff happening and this cri- this this, this crime this person is going to do a crime yeah, yeah so I kind of find it hard to follow but Emily Blunt's character finds it hard to follow even though she's a trained yeah. cop like because because it's all murky circumstances that works really well. Josh um, Brolin is fantastic. Uh, yeah, absolutely hilarious. Benicio great. del Toro is great as well. Nice, um, this is what season two of True Detective mm-hmm. could have been. It has been. such a good vibe, such a good premise, such good topics it's dealing with. I mean, the whole... I, I, I mean, just looking at, you know, it's a picture of life in these parts of Mexico where um, the gang violence, yeah. rates gang violence so high and people just, like, they just have to listen to the gunshots and then carry on with, like, the football game they're playing or whatever. There's I thought just that was so a bit glossed over, actually, but that doesn't really come up until that very last shot, which definitely is Well, I mean, there is a subplot where of, of like, a, a Mexican <laughs> cop and his family, and which you're kind of wondering... Of it felt out of place, and you're wondering, why are they showing this until later on in the movie Benicio Del Toro is holding him at gunpoint? And it has more impact that you see he's an actual person instead of just, oh, this is a cop saying, like, yeah. I have a son. That doesn't have as much impact. You see this person as a, like, a re- fully rounded figure. It's like, geez, how many lives are being screwed up by but all this Do you think that payoff worked, though? Because I was wondering, like, what is the payoff going to be with this character who we've not seen in track with the main cast yet? And then it comes up, with, oh, that's, that's it. Yeah, I, no, but I, th- I think it's more just to... Not do the usual thing that they just come out of nowhere and it's like, he says he has a son we're supposed to care, like, you know, but no, we've actually seen the son and we've seen the... I get that. I feel like if that was just the only point to it, they spent a lot of time on that character for very little real payoff. But aside from that, I do think it was great. The score is so good. Um, very horror really score. Horror. I mean, it's like and pumping. Yeah, and a lot of show. I yeah, mean, no, I I think this is probably going to be remembered as one of the best of the year as well. I'm I'm hoping it introduces the director to more audiences because hopefully, it's this more, yeah, it's more mainstream. Well, Prisoner actually did quite well. I think. 
Prisoner is an enemy were his last two films. Uh, go see Sicario. It's it's good. It is bleak. It will probably depress you a lot, but it is very good. It is great. Uh, it's just all I want really in cinema. It's just more crime drama, shot and score like horror movies. So, Jonathan, regale us with tales of our our land. We will um, talk about just, I think, three recent Irish movies that have been out in the last few months. Um, because I'm of the opinion that when John Michael McDonough said our audiences are wary of Irish movies, I think he had a valid point to make, even if he made the point in an incredibly obnoxious way. Um, there have been... We're starting to see more varied output in terms of genre and style from Irish movies, though. So in the last few months, we've had um, a Western, a crime comedy thriller thing, and we've had an animation that got nominated for an Oscar... Um, and he's still in the cinema, you can probably catch a matinee of it. I'm, of course, talking about Song of the Sea, a fantastic film. Uh, it's such a visually creative, really sweet story, uh, told very well. It's, it's, it's as good as anything Studio Ghibli produced. And I, I just, mm. you really need to catch up on it if you haven't seen it. It's a brilliant film. I think film. he will fight you on that one, but okay. Um, two other movies then. We have on Klondike. This is, very interesting concept for a movie. It is set in Montana along the Klondike River where there was a gold rush during the 1890s, but it is about Irish people uh, immigrating to there and trying to find their fortune. And, you know, it's a, it's a different angle on that. We were talking about Slow West uh, on a previous podcast, which is out early in the year, showing the kind of historical reality of settlers going out to the West. They would have mostly been immigrants. Um you see an Irish language community living in Montana. It's uh, and and how they interact with the Native Americans and the actual Native Americans uh, who are, you know, you know, really underrepresented in in general in terms of their history and their story. They're they're portrayed well in this. There's lots of interesting interactions. It's kind of like Game of Thrones in that there are lots of different characters to follow that are interesting, but horrible things happen to them. A lot. Lots of horrible things happen. Good, good. This was basically... It was shown at the Galway Film Festival, so it could be Ireland's entry for the Foreign Language Oscar. Uh, that has yet to be decided. Mm. Um, then T.G. Cahir screened it in the hope that it would get commissioned for another series. And um, I hope it would. It was, it was, it was very interesting. Cause I, I, I suppose the main characters are like the Connolly brothers, but that, 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 that would be a bit like saying the main characters in Game of Thrones are the Starks. You know, there, there is a lot going on. They have good material with which to make more out of it, and it is an interesting angle in the story, but, I mean, there were some problems with this. I mean, the, the production design is pretty good. They were shooting in Connemara for Montana, but some scenes which are very important to the story and you need to see what going what's going on are shot very darkly. Like, they're set at night or in a mine or something, and you couldn't see what was happening, and I, I, I thought that was annoying. Another thing that was annoying is that, like, you know... You know, some of the characters are good, but towards the end it gets quite rushed because I mean, they're obviously setting up for another season. But you get like one of the subplots is involving a pregnancy is resolved in a really, really contrived way, like annoyingly contrived. Keep downstairs. No. Oh. <sighs> Sorry. Keep going. I'm going to press on, if I may. Um, there's even like some of the characters get. Was she more... Mary Magdalene? Sorry. To conclude, <laughs> some of the characters get very ham hammy towards the end. There's like the antag main antagonist is this greedy capitalist, and he he actually says to someone towards the end, "You know, I only care about profit." And I'm just like, "You've already demonstrated that through this guy's actions and his other dialogue. You don't need him to be that feckin' on People the nose." People are idiots and need to be handheld. 
And, you know, it, but stuff like that is annoying, especially since they kill off the best character. But um, on the whole, I, I think it does... I'd like to give it another shot because there is good material for more of a season there. So maybe there would be a good TV show out of it. And if, like me, you have an irrational fondness for the Irish language and want to see it used more, if not in daily life, than film and television, then I would say catch up on Klondike. Maybe it's a good stocking filler for Christmas. Uh, another movie that of Irish cinema that was out in the cinema last month is Pursuit. This is a modern retelling of the Celtic myth of Dermot and Grania, and it, but it's set like in uh, gangland sort of crime worlds. Um, uh, Ruth Bradley from the movie Grabbers is to be married to Liam Cunningham from Game of Thrones, mm -hmm. but she's a mobster's daughter and she's kind of sick of living in for the there are only four episodes in all of Ireland. Uh, and she runs off with the third one. Uh, she holds him at gunpoint in a car and makes him drive out to the country. This is Barry Ward, who is great in Jimmy's Hall. And the two of them drive out to the country, and it's revealed that they had a romantic past and that they are going to run off together. So the mobsters are pursuing them to get her back, hence the pursuit of the title. Now, I, I kind of... I knew from the opening scene that this was going to be good. The opening scene is very well shot and very well paced and the story kicks into gear and moves along quite well and that was the point that got my attention and made me think, okay, this isn't going to be like a quote-unquote Irish movie, this is going to be an entertaining movie that is set in Ireland and it like it is an Irish crime comedy and there aren't many good ones but this mm. this one the, one, the difference that makes this stand out, take a note screenwriters, is that the humour is organic. Everything like, if they're, like, exasperated or panicked or swearing or something, it's because the situation calls for it. It's not because swearing in and of itself is funny. They're all reacting to things that happen in very organic ways, and it's all great until... Until halfway through the movie, they stop at a petrol station, and the guy working in the shop, uh, he, he, he's this kind of character who talks like this, and, and he's quirky, and he's annoying! He, this, I was so pissed off when this guy came on screen, because I was just like, no, movie, you you were so good at avoiding this. Like, this this character is basically, like, every unfunny, annoying shit character you've seen in Irish comedy ever, and he decides to tag along as their wacky sidekick, because he figures that he'd rather take his chances going on an adventure with criminals than staying in his monotonous uh, petrol station job. And every time he was on screen, I was just, I was yelling at him to go away. He was so annoying and it was so disappointing because the movie was avoiding all the usual pitfalls of Irish cinema that put people off Irish cinema. And then this <laughs> shows up. Uh, mercifully, about 15 minutes later, he's knocked out and left off at a hospital. And the two characters go off to Spain where Brendan Gleeson helps them go into hiding. And the movie gets good again. Uh, it leads towards a, a, an unexpected ending, but I think you would watch it thinking that was actually a pretty decent, solid film. I just think the the middle section is is just such a blemish on it because it was doing so well at avoiding usual pitfalls of Irish cinema. But you know, I I think in general Irish movies are getting better because what I reviewed there was like an okay Irish film with some flaws. There was a good Irish film with one major flaw and a brilliant Irish film with no with practically no flaws. Um. You know, I think we need to keep supporting Irish films, seeing Irish movies. You know, I think it's uh, it's coming around. Don't you, Richard? Well, from that very laboured segue, let us go into Brooklyn, the film we both just ah, saw Brooklyn. this morning. It's a lovely film. Did you not like it? In summary, to sum up Brooklyn, I think one could just say, In a scorty, in a scorty, bitches, bitches, bitches. Oh, taking the Lord's name in vain. Bitches, green, green, green. 
Oh, I wanted to die. Let's do this. I want to <laughs> kill myself and everyone else in that room. Which, which only made... big fire. You see, if you're going to see Brooklyn, you need to see it with Richard and see his face contort with uh, disdain and loathing. Because that, that, that... See, I liked it, but I loved it watching it with him. Because like, the more he hates it, the more I love it. Yes, the let the hate flow through you. Where I almost cracked a smile were Julie Walters' performance. Because she's... She's good at what she's trying to do. The material she's given is god-awful. It is Father's Head-level caricatured dreck. Problem is, Father's Head with comedy. This isn't. When you're trying to... Oh, it has comedic moments. No, but the problem is every single character is the same Irish caricature. When she's on the boat, the waiter goes, Oh, you can't be eaten. Not no, you'd be sick all night. Ho, ho, ho. And off he goes out of the scene. And every single person. And then the pet peeve I couldn't get over was the costume design. Now, I rarely notice that in movies, but... Every single thing she wore was green for the entire. No, no, no. not everything. No, okay, yeah, she might have had a blue sundress on at one point, a yellow, and a yellow dress, sundress. Uh, but for like ninety percent of the movie, she has this big green overcoat, a black it's dress. All you can see, yeah, but the green overcoat's <laughs> over it. It's like we're not going to forget that she's Irish film. The accent is bees <laughs> over the head of it, if it, as if every other secondary <laughs> character wasn't already. And at one point, she's literally wearing a white blouse. A green card, no, an orange cardigan over that, and then a green coat over that. She's literally walking around New York dressed in green, white, and orange. I was like, oh god, every second of this movie was excruciating. And then we get to the halfway point. I thought we'd been there for the five hours at this point. And she goes back to Ireland, and I was like, I was thinking to myself, isn't Donald Gleason in this somewhere? I could have sworn I seen a poster. But I guess he's not. Gets back to Ireland, Donald Gleason shows up, and immediately my heart sank, realizing, oh no, we're only in Act 2, there's going to be a love triangle. And there was. Uh, can I can I say in defence? I'm really really sick of love triangles, like especially this variety of like uh, one woman two guy. If there could be like a one guy two woman and an all woman, even an all man love triangle at this stage, I, I would watch just for something different. Like because mm-hmm. this this thing is so worn now in movies. I think in the defence of Colin Tobin, the writer of the book on which this is based, um, he wrote this book however many years ago. Uh, so maybe it wasn't as much of a thing then, but I think when it, when it does happen, it's kind of, oh, not this again. And what really kind of annoyed me about uh-huh. it is um, that I kind of... It, Donald Gleeson doesn't work in this. He, he He's very... Because uh, what happens is, like, Saoirse Ronan, who I, I don't think can do any wrong at this stage, she really carries this movie. I, th- I thought she was brilliant. The only thing she can this. do is do a convincing Irish accent. She was born in New York, grew up in Carlo. Her parents are from Dublin. It's it's going to be a mishmash. I don't think that's the problem. I I, I think she carries this movie. If she doesn't get an Oscar nomination for this, I I'm never giving a shite about the Oscars ever again. They're just genuinely nonsense. Are you joking? She's are you fantastic serious? in this. She's okay, but holy, she's not what? <laughs> oh, anyway, um, Wait, so this, she's this, great. No, sorry, we're going back to this. Of all the things this year, this performance, this is what you want to see get an Oscar. I'm not. I'm not saying like she'll win the Oscar, but like she, she should be there in the top five that are nominated. There aren't five better performances this year in your mind. I not that I've seen. No, I, I, like there are probably two or three I've seen that are better. But this is really, really good. Like she. Your points. I mean, this movie. Okay, the movie would be it would be nothing without her. You know, she really carries it. It was I nothing think. with her. She was so boring. Everyone was so um, boring. No one was a character. Everyone was a character. Dear, dear listeners, um, if, if you're of a kind of... If you're of a persuasion that is distrustful of sentiment of <laughs> any kind, and you consider any sentiment sentimental... That's not the problem here. Um, I think it is the problem with it you, because you're a deeply cynical, cold-hearted man. Uh, no, I think there are people who would love this movie. Oh, yeah, there are. Because it really strikes a chord with so much about um, emigration and so on. You must know by now that, you know, it's about um, 
Girl in the 1950s Ireland uh, in Enniscorthy who, apologies to residents of Enniscorthy, you are not portrayed well in this movie. You stand in for everything no that's wrong with Ireland conservative Ireland. Um, but so, Saoirse or Ronan, she, <laughs> or, or the Italian-Americans, yeah, basically she goes to America, uh, starts a new life there, but she comes home, and this is when the love triangle with Donald Gleeson comes in, because she already has an Italian-American love interest, but uh, she's home, and there's a guy from the local rugby club who, but I'm, I'm sorry, I, I really like Donald Gleeson, I think he's been great in a lot of things. He is not a rugby player ever. He is. Have you seen him? That occurs he to me too. Lank. I was like, he's a rugby player. Uh, okay. So that's a minor quibble. The, the bigger problem with Donald Gleeson is that um, the purpose of this character he plays in this story is it's supposed to be the temptate, the kind of like Irish guy who embodies all the opposite qualities of her American boyfriend, and like, oh, is she going to stay home or is she going to go back to Brooklyn? Uh, what's she going to do? There isn't any tension in this decision because Donald Gleeson. Although he has been good in other things, he is really weird in this. He is either miscast or just the character is just completely wrong for what the purposes of this love triangle is supposed to be. Because he's not charming or like alluring at all. He's a mopey, like stiff gombean with no personality, he... and it just doesn't make sense why there would be any question at all. And I think her performance was on par with his. I think they're both decent in this. I don't think either Oscar really. But I don't get why she's like, you know, the, the jewel of Ireland the whole time. Because she's really bland. She's bland, he's bland. The Italian guy is kind of funny but still bland. Has a really annoying, precocious little brother. Everyone gets less funny. annoying as he goes nope. on. I know. Nope. <laughs> the one thing I'll say in the movie's defense is when I was on the genuine verge of murdering someone in the vicinity, which probably wasn't you. <laughs> and then it did get kind of funny, because not intentionally, but the movie kind of becomes almost a horror movie when she's back in Ireland because it, it seems to imply that small town Ireland is this passive-aggressive hive mind that will constantly conspire to not let you leave. And yeah, so they're all trying ends. to pressure her into marrying Donald Gleeson's character. But, yeah, but it's everyone's like, giving me like, weird, shifty, knowing, smiling glances at one another, like looking at the windows to make sure the plan is going forward. It's, it's really weird yeah. and horrible. And... I suppose, like, we weren't alive during 1950s Ireland. I imagine it probably was the shithole depicted in the movie, oh, yeah. if the characters yeah. are a bit over-the-top. There, there are a lot of over-the-top performances in this. N not too many of them bothered me. There was, there, girl, there was one girl uh, from Cavan, oh, however she pronounces it. I, I turned to you and said, she's like a Monty Python character. Which I responded, every single character is like a Father Ted caricature. I, I don't know. I, I think... Julie uh, Walters is not a human being. It's That was not a character. <laughs> it deals with a lot of... Um, I, I, I suppose, it, yeah, this is a really interesting movie to look at in terms of portrayal of Irish people, and mm. just, it really does go for the very, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of a better word than stereotype, it's very exaggerated, like, personalities of all these different types of Irish people. Look, I think this is probably, it would be a nice movie to watch at Christmas in years to oh come. Yeah, oh, you will love it. I will, yeah. It's okay. oh, no, you're right. <laughs> think... that's such a, it's, like, it's one of those really boring Christmas movies you leave on the background and go, ugh. If you've been touched by emigration, there, there's probably, there, there'll be so many moments that will resonate with you. I, I yes, think. Good luck being beaten over the head with the references to it. It's, there is no subtlety, even. Oh, I forgot about the green thing, actually. So she's wearing green coats the entire time, and she also, had, she also had a bathing suit from Megan Draper from Mad Men. And she's like, no, you can't wear black in your skin tone. Wear the green one! Just so people make sure they definitely know you're Irish. Oh, that's fine. Come on. It's no, like... that was so contrived. And she wasn't wearing green in every scene. Look, I, there I were think... more scenes where she was than she wasn't. 
This movie is out on November 6th. It is Don't go see it. Burn it to the ground. It is, it is not for everyone. If, if, if you are if you are cold-hearted cynic. This has nothing to do with that. I went to You won't like that. it. No, if, if, you, if you are okay with a bit of sentimentality, I think, you know, Saoirse Ronan gives a great performance. There are bits of the movie that are annoying. It doesn't entirely work as a movie, but... Um, <laughs> it doesn't entirely work as a movie. I, That's not a recommendation. No, I went in thinking in my head, right, this is like, on the list of films that aren't for me, this is right near the top. <laughs> but that doesn't mean I can't appreciate or like it. There is nothing interesting in this movie. The acting was all very serviceable. The directing was flat. The overall cinematography was perfectly adequate, but looked very postcardy and very tourist boardy. And the uh, the score, I don't remember the beam score. Was there score? Yes, there of course there was. Yeah, there must have been score. And it I, was. It works really was. well in some scenes. Oh yeah, it was all the eye shot, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. No, it was. I remember the opening scene was just doo 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 as she's walking down. The There's a scene with a Shano singer in a homeless shelter oh. and she starts crying. No, that was a great scene. No, at the moment is that it was lingering in her face and they were really waiting for the tear to roll down her cheek mournfully for Mother Ireland when the man is singing I was about to shit myself laughing. That is the, if an American movie did that, we would be like, what a pile of patriotic twaddle. But because an Irish movie was like, no it's great, get fucking Folks, which of us sounds happier? Do you want to be like Richard Drum, or do you want to be like me, someone who you know can you know see happy. how much heart? I know you in, per- in real life. You're not happy at all. I just admit. In, 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 <laughs> <laughs> in relation to this movie, I thought it was fine. Um, Richard didn't. You know, you you, you know the score now. It had very good clock to dialogue continuity. <laughs> was, it was a surprising scene, but Megan Draper from Mad Men and Felicity Smoke from Arrow. In this film, I don't know why either of them are there. They had tiny scenes. Uh, uh, Julie Walters is okay. So, you, so you're kind of lukewarm towards the movie. Is that the impression I'm getting? Yeah, lukewarm. Uh, tepid. Tepid. Uh, moving towards small. Some of them are getting some kind of water that maybe have equal heat, and then burning alive, killing everyone involved, then myself. Um, it's really not that bad. It may not be for everyone. It, it is not. Sure as hell, not Oscar worthy. Saoirse Ronan is. Nope. Well, do we have anything else to discuss, or shall we leave it there? I can't. In good, it's lovely. I can't, in good conscience, say it's the worst film I've seen all year. Because Transporter Refuel offended me a lot more. But I would rather watch Hard to Be a God several times on loop again than sit through that dreck for even a second. Uh, of that's of unfair. You're gonna have to listen to our previous episode where we review a movie called Hard to Be a God to get just the weight of what he just said. That is that too far, man. <laughs> I think on that note we should end before I break something. Uh, very well, I'm Jonathan Victory. I did picture drum from an escorty. Oh, Irish leprechauns and green, green. Slon live, Gokthana. Slon live. <laughs>